Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another session of Career Talks. I am your host, Orlando Haynes, and I am super excited uh, for this next guest. Uh, we've been promoting it on LinkedIn. I had the extreme pleasure of speaking with this young lady uh, about a year ago, almost a year ago. Uh, I would say, yeah, about a year ago, we connected, talked about getting this together. Uh, then COVID hit, schedules changed, and we couldn't connect. I shifted from doing this during the daytime to the evening time and life and all these kind of crazy things got in the way. But who I have tonight is someone you do not want to miss. If you're catching it live, great. If not, you will absolutely want to catch the replay. Um, she is a New York Times bestseller uh, of multiple books. But her latest book, which is Catching Fire, is called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career. Through changing world of, through the changing world of work. So without further ado, I am super excited and honored to bring on Miss Lindsay Pollack. Hi, I'm so honored to be here. Look at that cool graphic. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. We, we talked briefly uh, right before the show. And one of the things I mentioned is that uh, you were just all over the place, but with, with just Busy, just busy. I'm seeing you all over uh, LinkedIn promoting stuff. So what I first want to, if you want to share some more information about who you are, uh, so the viewers uh, who are in the dark need to be brought to the light. <laughs> Thank you so much. Are you getting an echo or is that just me? Sounds I know, okay? I'll meet myself. Oh, good. Okay, good. Um, my name is Lindsay Pollock. I um, am a career and workplace expert with a specialty in early career success. I kind of trace my origin story to being an RA, a resident advisor in college, and I just fell in love with that time of life, kind of figuring out what you want to do. Uh, my first book in 2007 was called Getting from College to Career, and that really launched me as a college campus speaker. And at that time, an expert on uh, millennials. So I kind of became known as the millennial person. Um, and I did that for about 10 years, wrote a couple more books. Um, and a couple of years ago, I realized that it was really great to understand millennials and what they wanted from work. But what about all the rest of us? I'm a Gen Xer. Um, and you can't just focus on one generation. And the oldest millennials are now turning 40. Um, so I started researching how to succeed in the multi-generational workplace, wrote a book called The Remix. And I primarily speak at companies and colleges and conferences about how all the generations can succeed together at work. I'm really passionate about launching the next generation of leaders, particularly with soft skills, which I think sometimes are overlooked. And I wrote this latest book, Recalculating, based on, surprise, the COVID-19 pandemic last time Orlando and I uh, connected. And I'm just really excited to be able to kind of keep up with the times. And my mission is to always write the advice I wish I had. So when COVID hit, this is the book I wish I had had. Awesome, awesome. So let me let me first ask you, how, how was that transition? Because uh, you had a career prior to going into the entrepreneurial space. So how did you leap into not only entrepreneurship, but then this career workplace 
career development, uh, multi-generational. How did that happen? It was very organic, which means I didn't plan any of it. I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I think I always knew I would be eventually. Um, my mom had started her own business. She was an artist um, and she did a lot of work coaching artists. My dad was a teacher, but he started a test prep business. So I think I had kind of entrepreneurship in my blood. My grandmother used to plan parties and weddings. So I think I, I was very comfortable with it. Um, and I didn't mean to do it so early, um, which sometimes I kind of regret that I didn't work longer. Um, out of graduate school, I took a job in the new dot-com boom in the late 1990s. Working Woman Magazine had launched a website called workingwoman.com, and it was like my dream job. It was in New York City where I wanted to be. I was 25 or 26 years old working on career issues for women, which was you know amazing that I could do that and still also be you know at a kind of hip internet company. And what happened was after 18 months, the company went bankrupt. And very soon after that, 9-11 happened in New York, uh, where I was, obviously. And I was devastated because I had figured it out. I had landed my job. Like, I was, you know, on the path. And it was a very hard time to job hunt. It almost felt um, inappropriate to job hunt after 9-11, particularly being in New York. And I kind of half, you know, half-heartedly applied to jobs. But at the time, I needed to make money. So I was freelance writing. I was giving workshops where I could. I spoke at Girl Scout troops and junior achievement clubs and really anywhere, you know, for anyone who would hire me. Um, you know, my little leg up is that my aunt was a literary agent. So she got me some writing work. I would write newsletters and anything I could, hopefully in the career space. And working woman ended up sort of wrapping up into working mother. So I got a part-time job there because I kind of caught the entrepreneurial bug. And they wanted to hire me full time. And I said, I only want to work three days a week because I really am enjoying the writing and the speaking. And, you know, I am not someone who takes risks, Orlando. You learned about me. So I worked for several years, three days a week. And then I worked two days a week. And then I worked one day a week until finally I said, okay, okay, I'm going to be launching my own business. Um, so I was a somewhat accidental entrepreneur. Again, I think I always had it in me. I think it was always a dream. I just didn't mean to do it when I was 28 years old. And, and in some ways, I think I'm missing some of the training that other people had. But in other ways, I've now been doing this for almost 20 years. And so I've learned a lot along the way that I, I like to pass on to other people who are interested. So that's pretty interesting. So you went from three to one and then scaled and, <laughs> and captured 90 hours a week in entrepreneurship. So, which is funny because like you said, you. You didn't have as much corporate experience as you would liked, yet you're in this space and talking about career and development. So where have you gotten your, your data, your, your knowledge, your experience to where when you impact people with your books, like Recalculating and other books that you've written and when you speak, it's so relevant. How are you collecting that information? It's a great question. And for for a long time, I had imposter syndrome. I really thought, who's going to listen to me? Um, and I think in many ways, that's why I started at the entry level, because I did feel like I had some authority and some experience at that level. Um, beyond that, I am incredibly voraciously curious. I want to read every book and article and blog post on the planet. I want to listen to every podcast. I read about a book or two a week. I just love information. I took a, a strengths finder and my number one um, strength was input. I love to just learn and digest. I also love to interview people. And I think this was just kind of a natural skill that I had that kind of journalistic mentality where whenever I write a book, 
I don't start with what's in my head. I start by talking to people and talking to people and talking to people. I think I've always been a talker. I've always been a, a networker. Um, and so I always approach it from, you know, what are other people saying? Where I do think sort of a natural inclination came from is I do trust that if I'm struggling with something or want to learn something, other people do too. And I think that comes from being an RA where I thought all that stuff I went through in my early years of college, I knew that they wanted to hear my perspective on that. So, you know, I think even with this new book, Recalculating, I knew when COVID hit that I was not the only one struggling to figure out how to get through it. And so I started talking to people. So I think it's kind of that 10,000 hour rule, like just studying and studying and studying, but also I think trusting my natural curiosity and you know, frankly, you know this as someone who's, you know, an entrepreneur and, you know, working full time, I have a really strong work ethic. I think I'll work, you know, outwork anyone and figure things out. And that's what I try to do. So, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm talking a lot about this, I guess I still have some imposter syndrome. But I think that, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, some people who work at the same company for 30 or 40 years, and then consult maybe are not as valuable than people who come from outside of the corporate world, because we bring a beginner's mind. Right. And we look at things mm. in a totally fresh way. So I think it's a lot of factors, but it took me a really long time until I trusted that I had something to say, you know, beyond just the entry level. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think that a lot of people discount their real life experience and their natural skills because they don't have enough experience. And I've found that if you can bring value to people and show results that they often want to hear what you have to say. Wow. Wow. That's wonderful. That's that's pretty powerful, actually. It's, it's kind of like that old saying, you're never too old to learn. You're never too young to teach. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. So just, just believe in your strengths and, and kind of go for it. But that's that's amazing. The fact that so I could and I was talking with Andy. And I, so I consider you someone who's like um, kind of this powerhouse in this career space. Um, and to, to hear your story now is is pretty is pretty unique and, and funny that, again, with what you feel to be limited uh, corporate experience, but now you're someone that almost everyone will listen to when we're talking about career workplace expert. What does it look like to to merge the different uh, generations? So that's that's amazing. So I want to touch on that too. Then we'll dive right into the book. Um, you said you had authority because uh, you felt like you can speak to the youth or the the millennials first. Um, when did that shift change to where you had that epiphany to say, okay? It's not just the millennials. I need to bridge the gap between the Gen Xers and Gen Ys and the millennials because the millennials are starting to consume the workforce even more so. They're becoming the managers, the, the mid-level directors and VPs at an early age. So when did that epiphany hit for you? So I think if you want to have authority or subject matter expertise in any topic, you have to be a fantastic listener. And you have to listen to your clients. You can't go in and say, I think millennials are important. I'm going to tell you millennials are important. So whenever I do a speech, whenever I do a podcast, whenever I talk to anyone, I just am gathering information. What's on your mind? What are the hot topics? What's going on on campus? What's going on in the company? What's the buzz? What are you hearing? And very much in 2007, 2008, it was millennial all the time. I mean, that was it, it was like aliens from another planet had landed and nobody knew what to do with them. I mean, it was sort of shocking. I remember, um, you'll love this, my first corporate client was PricewaterhouseCoopers. And it was right around the time when Barack Obama was first running, I think even for the nomination uh, for president. And he was really going after the millennial demographic. So a lot, there was just so much buzz at that time about millennials. 
and everyone was talking about it. And I got a call out of the blue, a cold call. I had never done corporate speaking before, or maybe a little bit. And uh, PwC called and said, we hear that you understand college students. And I said, yeah, you know, I think I do. And they said, can you help us do that? And I thought, wow, don't, you know, like, wow. I didn't realize that there was a need there. And that's kind of what launched everything. And I was very fortunate, you know, once I had that client to build on it. So eventually, and I wrote that for a while. I mean, it was probably a good 10 years that everyone wanted to talk about millennials all the time. And it was actually really interesting. You know, I'd say this to other consultants or speakers. I watched the wave go from companies like PwC and investment banks and technology firms that recruited a lot of young people very early. So PwC is one of the top recruiters of just, you know, just by numbers of college students. So they were getting thousands of them a year. And then I watched it hit law firms because they would get them three years later, right? Because they would come out of law school. And then I would see it hit like more traditional, maybe old fashioned industries like insurance, manufacturing, government. So I kind of watched the millennial wave, you know, go through these different industries. And by the time the sort of last of that group were figuring out how to manage millennials, suddenly Gen Z's were coming along. And one of the things I started to notice was more and more at my workshops and in my speeches, when people raised their hand to ask questions, I just felt this surge of interest of people asking about Gen Z, that this next generation was coming along. And secondly, how many people said, well, Lindsay, that's really great about the millennials, but what about me? I'm a Gen Xer. What about me? I'm a baby boomer and I wanna work for 20 more years. And so when I could see the questions shifting, I thought, wait a minute, there's something to that. And I always start by writing articles, which turn into ideas for a book, which turned into the book, The Remix. So I really think listening is a very underrated skill. I think people sort of get a blank piece of paper and say, what am I gonna do? What's my business gonna be? What's my specialty? And I think instead you wanna start with a broad category like career and workplace, and then listen to what people are talking about that resonates with you. And that very much happened for that transition from millennial to multi-generational. So what I noticed in that from your last book to this one, it's just in the title alone and what it speaks to me, it says change, right? Remix, mm -hmm. change what's old, remix it up and recalculating. So you were always in a constant state of change and evolution to stay ahead of the market right now. So speak to what birth um, this book. And I, I believe I heard you said it before, but I want any viewers today uh, to hear what, what sparked that for you personally. I feel like you and I talked very early in the pandemic. I, I, I mean, I remember where I was sitting, um, which is where I had moved my desk very early in the pandemic, so I can remember it. Um, so yeah, I'd love to tell this story because I think we all have our moment when we realized this is gonna be very bad. Um, it was in March of 2020 and I am a speaker. I mean, that's primarily what I do in addition to books. I am not a coach like you. And about 90% of my income was from speeches. And I had a fully booked calendar. I was on track to have my best year ever in speaking. Uh, my husband had left his job to join my business and be my speaking manager. And in a period of about two weeks in March of 2020, my calendar went from completely booked to completely empty. And I'm not being dramatic. <laughs> it went from completely booked to completely empty. I usually get a 50% deposit. People requested those back. So it was a very, dark time. I remember I had moved my desk in front of my window in New York City, which is one of the best outcomes of the pandemic. I will never work away from a window again. And I was looking out at the street. And it's funny with my other books, I don't know about you, but with my other books, I had a very hard time with the title. Titles are very hard. With this book, it was the title that gave me the book idea. 
I saw cars on the street and I just had this image flash in my mind. It was magical where I thought of that moment when you're driving your car and you hit traffic or you make a wrong turn and your GPS says recalculating. And I just thought it is like every single one of us in March of last year was sitting in our cars and the GPS, you know, we're minding our own business, doing our thing. And the GPS just said, nope, you can't go that way anymore. You have to recalculate. And simultaneously, I felt terrified. But as I also kind of went down the GPS metaphor, because that's what I do, I thought, wait, this is actually really good and optimistic because when my GPS says recalculating, I actually feel really optimistic because it means it's okay. There's another way to get where you want to go. And that is what we had to embrace. So I thought, all right, I have a skill set. I have connections. I can't speak right now, but there are other things I can do. I just have to find out what they are. And I picked up the phone as I do and just kept calling people and talking to people like you and having conversations. What can I do? So I started a little coaching. I started doing more consulting. I started doing virtual events. You said you saw me everywhere. Like that was not an accident. I was like, I'll do absolutely anything. And I started to recalculate. And eventually I said, other people must need to do this. And you know, what's really kind of poignant is as I started writing the proposal and the introduction, I kept writing about now that we're done with COVID, what can we learn? Because I thought by March, 2021, it would all be over. And of course, as we find ourselves, it's not. So that was the origin story of Recalculating. I love that story. I love it. Because it, and here's what just popped in my head as you said it. So, and the question will come out of this. So when we're driving a car, when you have the GPSA recalculating, we have a certain level of comfort because we're being guided, mm-hmm. right? So we we know it's guiding us to the to the next route to make a left, right, whatever. But when it came to the career and your business and just we had no immediate guide, it was an absolute loss of and fear. I'm sure fear struck everyone for the most part. And where did you find your guidance? Where did you you find your GPS in that moment? It's a great question. First of all, I'm going to be honest. I am a very conservative person financially, and I had savings. And I have never been so grateful for my savings and the fact that I had a credit line for my business. So entrepreneurs, (laughs) talk to your banker and get a credit line for your business. I also applied for the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, and I was fortunate to receive one of those loans. So I needed help um, and I went for it. So I think it's really important as an entrepreneur to have a relationship with a local banker. Um, I know that sounds really old fashioned, but I had a relationship with my local banker and said, you know, talked about my credit line, talked about the PPP. So I think the financial piece is really important and I'm very happy to be transparent about it because it was not an accident that I had a cushion. Um, beyond that, um, what guided me was my network was knowing that I've been doing this for 20 years. I have relationships. People will help me. People will support me and I will support them. And, you know, as I said, when I'm doing research, I got on the phone. I worked the phones and just set up phone call after phone. It's the same thing. I interviewed so many job seekers, you know, who who got laid off during the pandemic who said, I just made call after call after call after call. I took every webinar I possibly could. Um, I just got out there and, you know, it's interesting when I think I'm going to see, excuse me, I don't think I've ever sneezed on a a LinkedIn live. Thank you. Very awkward. (laughs) Sneeze. Um, So um, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, um, the mistake I made, you know, after 9-11, when I had lost my job in that situation was I kind of crawled under the covers and thought like, this is terrible. 
I'm never going to get a job again. And I knew not to do that. I knew that the danger was to become paralyzed. And I saw a lot of people doing that. So to me, the antidote was action, was how many people can I talk to? What can I do? And look, did I cry? Yes. Did I eat too many peanut M&Ms? Yes, I did. I was terrified, but I knew that the way out was through people as it often is. I love it. I love it. Tony Robbins says, I am a immediate massive action. And I think a lot of us will, will rest in a sad place for, for far too long, far too long. And we absolutely need to be in that state of uh, recalculating. So jumping into the book, one of the first things I absolutely love that you state right, right from the beginning, it says, adjust your mindset. Please speak to folks when it comes to adjusting their mindset and how that can help them propel. I'm kind of embarrassed because in my three other books, I don't think I gave more than a sentence or two to mindset. I just was like, LinkedIn, resumes, networking, you know, like do, 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 do. And like, that was not an option with this book. I mean, it was such a dark time. You know, all anyone wanted to talk about was how are you feeling? How are you doing? Um, and I've read a lot of personal development books. I've worked with life coaches and therapists. So I I had a lot of experience in mindset and you know self-care, self-awareness, and I hadn't written about it. It's funny, people keep saying this book is so much more personal than your other books. And I realized like you couldn't avoid it anymore <laughs> with COVID, right? To talk about our feelings and our health and you know what happened with the racial justice, you know, just all the trauma in right. May and June of that year. You couldn't not have those conversations. And, and I think in some ways I was like, well, I'm just a career speaker. You know, I don't have to talk about that feeling stuff. And I realized every single call I was having was talking about the feeling stuff um, and rightly so. Um, so part of what I wrote was how can I adjust my own mindset? And you know, one of the best conversations I have that's in the book is with um, Lamar Pottinger who works for the NCAA in their leadership program. And, um, we were doing some work together and he it came out that he was an athlete in college which is how he got involved with the ncaa he was a, a runner a hurdler and i asked him you know i've never been a very good athlete but it strikes me that athletes might have particular lessons on resilience you know and failure or maybe you've been through a, um, an injury and he gave me a lot of advice um, i share it in the book about staying in your lane because it was very very hard for me not to look at other speakers and authors and say, why didn't I build a coaching practice? Why didn't I do that? You know, they're all so much better positioned. And I really played that game. And his advice, stay in your lane, you know, like just focus on the next hurdle was so valuable to me because my negative instinct was to start looking at what other people were doing. So I wrote that chapter for myself as much as for anybody else. Wow. Yep. We do a lot of comparison. We do a lot of comparison. And it's that's never a positive thing to outcome. So here's one that, like I said, I, I jotted down several because they just immediately spoke to me when I saw the titles was squad support is so powerful. <laughs> Love that. And, and, and is that different from your network? Somehow squad, first of all, it's a better word. It's more fun. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's about finding your community, right? So you can network with a lot of different people, but I know when I was first an entrepreneur, and again, it was very early, like when I started my business in 2002, there was no, there were no co-working spaces. There were no, it, there was just nothing. I mean, there was, there was very little support and sort of being an entrepreneur meant starting a huge business. There just wasn't this sort of gig consultant world. 
And I remember a lot of my friends who were all employed thought I was like sitting at home watching TV. You know, they sort of didn't understand, like, what are you doing? And I didn't even know at the time. And what really, I think, helped me find success, and it took years, was finding a community of other people who were doing it, who didn't think I was crazy. I mean, at that time, it was, you know, pretty early days of the internet. So it was more in-person meetings and, and networks and classes and so on. And so to me, squad support is different from networking because it's finding your community and your supporters. And one of the most powerful stories um, that I found in the book, I interviewed a woman named Robin Salo, who had been my client at a big retail company, and she was laid off and had emailed me to help her you know, find a job. And I was like, well, actually, I'm going to interview you. And one of the best things she said was that a community of some of her colleagues at the company who had all been laid off, were all unemployed, banded together and had a text group where they said like, you know, say it was you and I, hey, Orlando, you know, I saw this job, you might like it, or I'm having a bad day, you know, can you give me a call? Or, hey, do you wanna go for a walk? And they supported each other, even though you could kind of think of them as competitors because they'd all been laid off from the same company. Instead, they formed this group and realized we're not in competition. And so I think finding your squad means knowing who to reach out to, knowing who's gonna be supportive. And frankly, I think you need to be really um, picky and choosy because some people are not going to be supportive and some people are not going to, I can't believe how many people after doing this for 20 years said, well, maybe you should just get a job, right? Because it would be more secure. And like, those were not my squad who said things like that. So I think you have to find the people who lift you up and want to support you. And I think that community is, is just really powerful. I mean, I think you, you and I are in that with some of the career experts that we collaborate with. I'd love to hear how you have a squad. Cause I think we're kind of in one with Andy Storch and Lori Rudiman and Erica Pierce and, some other people in our field. And I think that's come together more during the pandemic than ever before, if you agree. Yeah, absolutely. So I know locally here in, in Florida, a few people that I quickly collaborated with and we kind of watch each other's back is, uh, and by chance, all women, all women, all entrepreneurs uh, doing a thing. One, her name is uh, Barbie Winterbottom. Uh, she was a uh, former CRHO or CHRO. Uh, for a company here in, in the Tampa market. And then Liz Lopez, who's an executive resume writer. And then Susan Reese, who runs a computer a company called Computer Coach, which she helps a lot of local people get recertified with uh, project management. And she, Lindsay, what I tell you, she, she does a lot for the community. She puts out daily Zoom calls to help folks prep and from interviews to everything daily. She won an award for that because it was upwards of 70 some odd in the in a matter of a, of a month or something like that. It was insane. So I happened to connect with these three ladies and, you know, the stuff that I've learned that we've talked about in collaborations, it's been phenomenal. Um, and just to see where they're going, where errors I can, you know, uh, errors I don't make, I can reach out to them and they say, hey, try this, try that. So it's been it's been powerful to have uh, that community, like you said, that, that squad um, of, and these ladies are senior professionals, so they've been in the industry quite a while. So I know I'm getting some tremendous nuggets um, when I speak to these folks. Um, and you are now part of that. So <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> so I'm honored. what you just said kind of bleeds into another part of the book you talked about. Um, you said we talked about squad support. Now you said build a personal advisory board, advisory board. So talk to us about the, the difference in, in that. So I hate to get too granular because the, the overall umbrella message is surround yourself with good people, right? And reach out mm -hmm. to them and ask for help. Um, that's sort of the key message. But 
you know, to me, a squad is more peers, right? It's more people who are similar to you, maybe pursuing similar goals, et cetera. An advisory board, to me, I, I feel really passionately that mentoring is wonderful, right? Having an older kind of Yoda-like mentor is a wonderful thing, and I've had many in my career, but it's just not enough. And if you were seeking a mentor to guide you through COVID because they had been there before, you weren't going to find it because nobody's ever done this before. And so I think this idea, I also, because I work so much with younger professionals, they put a lot of pressure on themselves to find this sort of be all and end all mentor who's going to tell them everything to do. And that just doesn't happen. So if you have someone like that, great. But I think you need more. And so I like micro mentoring. You might get micro mentoring from watching this LinkedIn live, from listening to one of our clubhouses, from following Orlando on LinkedIn. That's, you know, all the time. But to me, I think everybody needs to have the concept not a literal, but a concept of a personal advisory board, which is a group of people, it could be three, it could be 10, it could be 20, where you call on them when you're making a big decision or you have a choice to make, or you're not sure what to do. And I don't wanna parse out like who's on my squad versus who's on my advisory board. I don't categorize people, but the idea is like an organ, a company or a nonprofit would never have one advisor. They would have a board of multiple people with different perspectives. And one of the things where I've really, I think, learned a lot over the past few years is I think in my early career, everyone in my advisory board kind of looked like me, right? Or used to look like me. And what I realized is, particularly through my multi-generational work, is I need people who are 20 years older than I am and 20 years younger. I need people who are from different races, sexual orientations, different professions, different personality types. Maybe I'm an extrovert and I need an introvert. Because you're never going to get fresh ideas, particularly at a time of crisis like COVID, if everybody looks and sounds like you. And so I think having a diverse group of people, and it also sort of takes the pressure off. So if you're my mentor and you don't give me good advice or I don't feel comfortable reaching out, that's it. I'm out of luck. But if I speak to you because I'm negotiating something and you're great at that, but then I speak to Andy because he's really good at marketing, and then I speak to Barbie because she's really good at um, calming me down when I'm stressed out, I have a much wider variety of people to call upon. So I think particularly young professionals and entrepreneurs should think about cultivating a group of people. They don't even have to know that they're on your board, but the concept is have a diverse group of people to call on for advice. I love that. That's that's powerful because most folks would think they need to be all peers, similar, like-minded folks versus someone you can reach up to in all this diversity. That's 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 really good. That's really good. So we actually have a question for you um, from Patrick Quinlan. His question is, what are some guidance for new associate degree grads? Any examples of success? Patrick, thank you for the question and congratulations. Um, first, I would say, have you been to the Career Center at your college? Um, have you used every resource available to somebody with an associate's degree? A lot of people go on to a four-year college after getting their associate's degree. So if that's what you would like to do, that's great. If you want to jump into the job market, I would rely on the Career Services Office for two reasons. One is it's free advice. So they will review your resume. They will do mock interviews with you. They'll help you with your LinkedIn profile. Um, and all of that is available to you even after you've graduated. And even if your particular college doesn't have those services or you're not happy with them, often you can reach out. There might be others in your network, particularly if you're part of a, a state um, college or community college system. Um, the second thing that college career centers can do is they know what mm -hmm. other people with an associate's degree in your area have gone on to do. 
So they are people, and, and it's funny you mentioned Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins says, whenever I want to learn how to do something, I talk to five people who've already done it, right? And say, all right, what do I need <laughs> to know? So I think you want to find the people who have had your degree or had um, a similar degree from your college or in your program and see what they've gone on to do. If you're not able to do that or you don't want to do that, this is what LinkedIn was made for, right? Look up your college, look up people with a similar degree and look at what jobs they've gone on to do. You can use that to apply for similar jobs or just to do some research to see what might be possible. So one of the tips that I like to give is you need to become the world's leading expert on how to get a job with your particular situation. Um, mm -hmm. I think community colleges are having a real moment right now because of the crisis, uh, because of the pandemic. And so I think a lot of organizations that would have required a four-year degree in the past are more willing to consider people with associate's degrees. So I actually think you're very well positioned in the current economy, but please ask a follow-up if that doesn't help. Awesome, awesome, thank you. <clears throat> so, you, which we, you're just feeding me the, the correct lead off so I can just <laughs> spike the next question. So we, we're on the topic of social media. You just gave Patrick some solid uh, advice around using LinkedIn. So when it comes to that, um, can we talk about social media network presence or valued in your industry? What's, what platform is the most valued in the industry and how do folks figure that out? So I dug into a lot of research about social media. There's a really big difference between passive social media, which is doom scrolling and jealousy scrolling and sort of falling down the rabbit hole, which is not good. And some of us just need a detox. Like if you are just feeling toxicity around social media, like take a break. I think that is so important. I actually just moved Instagram to a full, you said you sent me a message on Instagram. I didn't get it because I just moved Instagram to a folder on my phone to make me have to do two clicks to get to it instead of <laughs> one because I'm trying to trick myself to not be on it nonstop. So number one is there's a really big difference. Active social media usage can be an incredible tool for job hunting. So a couple of things, Orlando and I are both huge LinkedIn fans. We're literally on the LinkedIn platform right now. I was a spokesperson for LinkedIn for six years, huge advocate. This is why LinkedIn exists. Nobody will ever be upset that you try to network with them on LinkedIn. No one will be offended if you reach out to them on LinkedIn to network. That is literally the whole reason for its existence. So it is a fantastic way in a very safe, accepting space to reach out and say, I admire your career, or you and I went to school together, or I watched your LinkedIn live. You know, Could I ask you a couple of questions? So I think the networking on LinkedIn is phenomenal. The LinkedIn profile, to me, if you are unclear or not sure if you want to do it, to me, that's where you put your stake in the ground and say, this is how I want you to see me as a professional. Yes, I have my resume. Yes, I have my cover letter. But this is kind of my professional billboard. So in your photo, I would wear what you would wear to a job interview in your field. Look like you want to look. And I think probably the most important piece of real estate about you on the internet, if you're a job seeker, is your LinkedIn headline because people are lazy and nobody's gonna read every single thing that you say or write. They want the cliff notes, the spark notes. So if I gave you 10 seconds to describe yourself, what are all the things you would want me to know? That should be your LinkedIn headline. And I am a very big fan. You can look at my LinkedIn, stuff it with all the words that you want people to know. I don't care if it doesn't look pretty, just put everything in there that you want people to know. And really importantly, if you're a career changer, or a recent grad, put what you want first. So don't say graduating senior from blah, 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 university seeking position in mechanical engineering, put mechanical engineering candidate first. 
really, really important. Um, and I think the final thing I'll say about social media beyond LinkedIn is just like going to your kid's soccer game or showing up at a conference or joining a, a Facebook group, just a way to be social and perhaps run into somebody or have a casual conversation. That's how I treat Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, any other network is I'm not going to go in and say, Orlando, do you have any jobs or will you read my resume? I'm going to say, hey, good to see you. How are, how's the family? How are you doing? And it's as if we bumped into each other at the grocery store. And then I might say, you know what? I'd love to talk about my career. Could we take it offline and have another conversation? So to me, LinkedIn, all in professional conference, all the other networks are just ways to kind of build those social ties and relationships, which you can then elevate to a professional conversation. Does that all make sense, Orlando? It does. And I love that. So unbeknownst um, to you, I actually did a conversation uh, or a speech for the National Urban League a couple of weeks ago and utilized your LinkedIn profile. You did not. <laughs> I did. I had it in my presentation. Did I change um, it? I change it like every day. So it probably doesn't even look the same as it did then, or I, I changed it probably during your program live. It was funny, but um, when I did it and I spoke to how the clarity of the banner, you just have your four books and you have, you know, career work, career and workplace expert, simple, clear to the point, And then how you have your, your header, all the, all the details in it. And I was just like, this is what people look for, right? Just how simple, clear, there's no ambiguity. People know exactly when they land on your page. This is what this individual does. And I was like, yep, this is a person uh, that I follow. And I try to get folks to like, hey, follow this lady, follow her content. You'll get more expertise uh, in, in the workspace as well. So Patrick does actually have a follow-up question. Sure. So what are the top three rules after an interview? Great question, Patrick. Ooh. Um, number one, immediately send a thank you email. And um, in my first book in 2007, I wrote that you had 24 hours to send it and I have changed my mind. <laughs> I think you have 12 hours to send it. Um, I think 24 hours is too long, particularly in the virtual environment. So just a really simple email. It is shocking to me how few people actually send emails. You would know this better than than I would, Orlando, but um, absolutely required, do not pass go, thank you, email. And if you were interviewed by three people, send three different thank yous. Um, number two, gosh, three, okay. Um, number two is make a plan for follow-up. So decide what your cadence is going to be. Recruiters are busy. Um, and you are probably not the one thing they're thinking about. They might have 50 jobs open at a time. So mark in your calendar that maybe a week or two weeks later, Orlando, I would defer to you on, on what um, recruiters want. Mark what your follow-up date is going to be. Better yet, if in the interview you ask them when you should follow up, you should follow those rules, but mark exactly when you're going to do it so that you can follow up. And the third thing I'm gonna say is maybe a little counterintuitive, which is go and apply for other things. Um, I'm someone who's learned the hard way and I coach a lot of people or talk to a lot of people who apply for one job, they decide it's perfect and they do nothing. You have got to keep a lot of irons in the fire. So never put all of your job search energy into one position as perfect as it might feel, go and apply for other stuff. But Orlando, this is your expertise. So I'll defer to you. No, you're, you're, you're spot on. And one of the things I would say adding into um, the letter, uh, the thank you letter, is to what you said. So if you met with three folks, right, making sure one, you're taking notes during the interview so you can remember what each individual said and then try to find unique selling points that you can pitch back to them and kind of close that deal. That's another opportunity. You have 12 hours to reflect. Oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Write it down, make it clear, make it concise. 
Um, be very, very clear. Don't two, three sentences. Don't overdo it with a paragraph um, in, in most cases, but be very clear, make it unique because I've known managers who will cross-reference letters and be like, they just copied and pasted the same letter and disregard the candidate just because there was no no innovation, no thought, no creativity to, to how they approached the interview or how they tried to follow up. So definitely make unique points in each um, in each email back if you're in a panel interview, absolutely. So let's move on to a lot of stuff I'm, I'm pulling out is because we're, we're such in a virtual space now, but it, it, it really, uh, it makes sense because of the current times we're in and it's craft your virtual environment. I would love to hear what do you call your, your virtual environment? So I get a question a lot about how to succeed in virtual interviews. And the reality is it's a learnable skill because you have total control over your square. Even if you are in a messy house or you live with 10 roommates or you have you know cats and dogs and kids running around, get a virtual background, right? There's so many ways to do it, but don't wing it when it comes to what your background looks like. It is part of your personal brand, just like you would brush your hair and brush your teeth and be well-groomed for an interview. You have to groom your background. I bought a $9.99 ring light so that I look better on a camera, right? You clearly have light on you. Make sure that it's not cluttered in your background and know how to talk into a screen and feel comfortable. For instance, with a job interview, they will tell you what technology they're going to use so that you can practice it and make sure that you're comfortable with it. But the fiddling and, you know, I mean, we've been doing this a long time now. If you're not comfortable using Zoom now, you've got to practice because it's no longer acceptable to not know how to do it. So building your virtual background or controlling your virtual background is, you know, I talk a lot about control what you can. There's so much out of our control right now. We don't know when and if we're going back to the office. We don't know what's happening with variants and vaccines and this and that. You can't focus on that. This is kind of the, the hurdler analogy again. You've got to look forward. What you can focus on is what people see when they first see you. And first impressions matter. And your background is part of that. So again, if it's not perfect, get a virtual background or blur your background. All of that is totally acceptable. But you want to be mindful that that is part of the presentation that you're giving to even a networking connection, or of course, in a job interview, it's now part of you, your background. So with that, what are you, what are you hearing back from uh, people that you talk to or interview with, meaning it's been particularly job seekers or employers in, in a sense of not just that it's tough to find a job more so, but what are some things that they're struggling with that's kind of hindering their progression to, to even be competitive in this market? I think a lot of it goes back to mindset. And I, I think one of the, the people in the comment asked about the job market after 9-11, there was a real dip, particularly in New York. And I'll tell you, it felt inappropriate to job hunt. It felt tacky to talk about needing a job when our country had been attacked. And I think there was a sense at the beginning of the pandemic that there was so much loss and so much trauma and so much fear that it was very hard you know, most professional conversations weren't professional. They were very personal. You know, I don't know if you agree with that, but it's a very, it's very hard to network or talk about your career when so much is going on in the world. So I think that that reminds me a lot. We bounced back quite quickly, particularly in New York, from um, the, the recession that followed 9-11. Um, certain industries more than others, travel suffered for a long time. Um, so, and I think even now, certain industries are going to bounce back much more quickly. Um, and now I've totally lost track of the question. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> Absolutely. So 
uh, it was more or less, what are you hearing from either job seekers or employers? Well, oh, yeah. specifically yeah. job seekers. What yes. other struggles other than, oh, I'm not, I can't find the job that fits me. Yeah, so where I was going with 9-11 was what I'm hearing from job seekers is what I felt, which is, well, now it's dragged on a while. So now are people gonna wonder why I haven't done something sooner? There's so much overthinking of kind of where we are and what's gonna happen. And I think what's getting in people's way is their own narrative. Have I been out of work too long? Is the job market doing well? And that's all an example of not controlling what you can. You know, am I too old? Am I too inexperienced? You know, do I know what I'm doing? You can't answer those questions because you don't know who else is employing, all applying. All you can do is focus on your own story and your own narrative. And so I think the job seekers who I admire the most are the ones who were realistic, right, about what they could and couldn't do. But they did a lot of thinking about what they wanted before they went into the market and said, okay, what do I want? Because if I know what I want, I can make a plan to get it. But if I'm just trying to follow the currents of what's happening, I'm not necessarily going to find what I want. And so I'm a huge fan of doing an assessment because that will give you some suggestions. I actually have a free one. I don't know if I can put it in the chat, but um, on my website, I partnered with a company called um, Capfinity uh, for their strengths profile. I do some spokesperson work for them. And it's a way to just say, what am I good at? And to give you an example, um, I spoke with a chef who had no work during COVID because restaurants were shut down. And you know, as a lot of people felt, he said, you know, I was kind of wanting a change anyway. So maybe this is a blessing in disguise. We heard a lot of people say that. He took an assessment and it showed that he had tremendous skills in logistics because he had ordered ingredients and planned schedules and you know was so, so good at organization. And he got really interested in logistics. He took a one credit class on logistics and was able to make a transition and get a job in a different field that he hadn't even known about because he opened himself up to it. But what he knew was he didn't want to be a chef anymore. So you've got to find, you know, it's like you can't get where you want to go and you can't say to your GPS, take me somewhere good, right? You need to give it a destination. And as hard as that is, I really think the hardest part of the process for people is what do you really want? And I think, you know, one of my fears is that we don't learn lessons from this experience mm -hmm. that we've had. So what are the lessons that you've learned? Maybe you learn that you love working from home and your next job has to be remote. Maybe you learned that you hate working from home and you don't want your next job to be remote. You only want a company where it's going to be in person. Maybe you realize that you have to work for a company that aligns with your values. Maybe you want to do something completely different. Maybe you realize you were not committed to your job, but now it's a real blessing and you want to commit again and you want to stay in your job and do better. Whatever it is, I think it's that front end. I think we spend all our time thinking about the resume, right? Or the interview and kind of the process. But I think you have to really go back to basics. And I, I suggest journaling. I have a journaling exercise in recalculating, which is, what do you want? Where do you want to go? Whether it's writing your obituary or writing your ideal job description, there are a lot of ways that coaches will walk you through it. But I think the combination of an assessment and a desired destination or a goal, and it could be vague. It could just be, I want to do something that I love and believe in, but at least it gives you somewhere to navigate towards. And I really think that job seekers are kind of missing out on that. They jump to the job search before they've done the reflection. What, what do you think? You work with a lot of job seekers. Yeah, and I was going to ask you a controversial question uh, upon that. Oh, good. I love controversy. <laughs> so I'll, I'll leave with that. So do you, and a lot of folks, if they catch the replay of this, and they, they can fire off any questions. Are you finding that since March of last year, coming into the pandemic, that some folks have just gotten lazy? And that folks that are... You know, some folks are just like, they, 
we have folks that are just driven to get their career back on track who've been affected. But do you feel though, or have heard or spoken with folks that are kind of allowing the system to support them a little bit and not be as active as they should be, or are they resting in this time thinking and hoping something will change for them without putting in the effort? I think that some people are resting and hoping that things will change, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't call it laziness. I, I think it for a lot of people, it's paralysis. Mm -hmm. I think it's when you don't know what to do and you don't know when your kids are going to be back in school, whether you want the vaccine or you're going to get the vaccine or other people, you know, there's so much that if you start to focus on all of those what ifs, I think it can be paralyzing. And, you know, I have a lot of compassion because after 9 11, I really curled up in a ball and was like, I don't know what to do. And I don't think I was lazy. I think I was paralyzed, you know, and I, I use that term loosely. But I think for a lot of people, and then what happens is if you've been out of work for three months or six months, it's mm -hmm. like, well, I've been out too long. Now I don't have a chance. So I, I think it really is frustrating and difficult. And I think the hardest thing to do is when you've been in that state. And I, I think, of, I mean, look how many women have left the workforce to take care of their children. That's not laziness. That's lack of choices, right? So yeah, I'm sure there are people who've kind of ridden the wave, but I, I think for many people, it's either not having a choice because you've had to be a caretaker or just sort of not being able to motivate. And I think the only antidote to that is you've got to take the tiniest little action you possibly can one day at a time and start to get out there and do absolutely anything you can to get motivated. And it's really, really hard but you've got to start with the smallest steps. So I have a lot of compassion for, for people struggling right now. And I think it's going to take a lot. Look, I think, I think we're all in trauma. And I think there's a lot of mental health concerns and, and really serious issues that, that can be getting in the way. So I, I try to have compassion and, and assume the best. I'm sure there's some lazy people, but I, I think there's just a lot of paralysis. What do, what do you think of all that? No, I, I think you hit it right on because when you just said that folks will begin after three months, after six months, they start to build these detractors and it's really not the case. So the follow up for me and I'm thinking are employers becoming more transparent and more um, empathetic to job seekers during this time? Like, cause there are, I know a massive amount of people who want to get back to work. And then I come across those who are, are, are kind of, you know, leveraging the, the system a bit and before, before it's really time for them to go back to work. But uh, I, I just really hope that employers are looking at this at the same time. And because I'm, I'm just especially in the Tampa market, I'm here. I talk to different employers and they're saying it, it's tough to find people um, and they're, they're still scared to come back to site. So companies are starting to come back to on site and their their, their fear is definitely there to, to even darken the door of an employer right now. They're, they're hoping it could be a work from home position. And rightly so. There are a lot of people with health concerns or family members with health concerns who are, have lost a lot of trust. You know, I think employers have to step up and and build trust again, right? Especially if they had outbreaks or they relate to, you know, making certain decisions. It's just such a complicated topic. But I interviewed a lot of employers for the book and they say that they will be more compassionate toward unemployment, long-term unemployment, parents returning to the work, taking time out for caretaking, um, maybe taking a you know entry level position when you're more experienced, having worked at a grocery store or in a factory to make ends meet. My feeling is you've done what you've done, right? Whatever you did during the past year, you cannot change it. So you got to spin it 
to make it a good story. And maybe it is, you know what? I put food on the table for my family. And yes, I did that by working in an Amazon warehouse and I'm proud of it. Cool, great. Now I can check that box. Or I had to leave the workforce to take care of my two children or I am immunocompromised and I couldn't go into a workplace. So, you know, this is my only choice, but you have to own that decision and not apologize for it, right? So many recruiters told me, people come in and say, oh, I know you probably think I've been unemployed too long, or you probably think I'm too old, or I probably shouldn't have taken so much time off with my kids. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You have to own your decision. And I interviewed several people who turned it into a positive, who said, actually, I am so proud of what I did. You know, I'm so pleased with the decision. I think it gives me more compassion for the employees I'm going to manage. I think that it gives me a different perspective on my job because of X, Y, and Z, right? And I can prove that I can do it. I'm ready to go. I think that that's really powerful. So whatever you've done, you can't change it, but you're going to have to answer the question. Recruiters are going to ask the question, how did you spend this last year? And what did you learn from it? And you're going to have to have a really compelling answer to that question. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have one final question. We are coming up to a full hour and I want to be mindful of uh, Lindsay's time because she is super busy. And this is, this is a big question here. So what about feeling guilty for searching for a new opportunity, even though your current employer kept you on during the worst times of 2020 or feeling guilty when you know unemployed, unemployed people really need a job and you're searching to make the transition? It's a great question. It's a great question and it shows, I think, a lot of compassion and empathy. So Mm -hmm. number one, you have every right to make a decision that is right for you and your family. If you feel guilty leaving your employer and looking for another employer, I think all you owe your current company is to do your very best job until the day you leave, to leave with grace and to show incredible gratitude for what they have done keeping you on. That is all that you owe them because you know what? Companies are doing layoffs and they don't feel guilty about it. So show grace, leave in a respectful way, giving the right amount of time and show gratitude for the opportunity that you've had. That is all you owe your current employer. Number two, feeling guilty about getting a different job, seeking a transition when people are unemployed. I would channel that guilt into community service into coaching others, into supporting, um, you know, a Kickstarter for somebody who's launching a business. You know, I don't think it's if I get a job, you don't get a job. I think it's taking that compassion and applying it in ways that are meaningful to you to support other people. But you're wanting another job and making a successful transition does not mean that somebody else cannot have the same thing. So that's my advice, take it or leave it. But that's how I would try to frame those issues. And a, a really beautiful question. Thank you. Love it. So last question, what is next for you, Lindsay? What are you working on next? I'm just going to be really honest. Um, I am trying to diversify my business in creative ways so that all my eggs are not in the speaking ba- basket. So I'm actually having fun experimenting with e-courses, little bit of coaching, consulting. I don't know, maybe I'll do a LinkedIn Live like you. Maybe you'll mentor me or personal advisory <laughs> board me on that. Um, I've been doing a lot more writing. So I think it's a combination. I've gone back to basics where I'm really writing a lot more than I have been in recent years. And like you said, I'm kind of saying yes to everything and just trying to experiment and try because you can sit and write a business plan and think, 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 think. But if you don't go out and try stuff, you never know what the next step will be. So I'm really kind of in an experimentation phase that I'm really grateful for. It's not always easy, um, but yeah, what's next for me is a lot of experimentation. How about you? What's next for you? 
Oh my God. So yeah, I'm definitely looking to, you know, increase the side business that will actually mirror and couple with my corporate uh, role. So I've been lucky to have both like that uh, mm -hmm. because I've been doing talent acquisition and recruiting for 18 years and spin off to do coaching. But I definitely want to uh, pick up the speaking. I'm looking at writing another book. I don't know when it might switch. And I've been toggling with this. Maybe you can give me some advice on this with almost shifting more towards career mindset, business understanding versus just career, uh, kind of helping job seekers understand they should do their best to become a business professional. This way they, they add more value to the organization. So I'm still talking with that, but we'll see. We'll see what definitely, sir. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, uh, for your time, uh, for your wisdom, for your friendship, uh, for your for your mentorship that I will be tapping you and asking you all kinds of questions behind the scenes. And I look forward to having you on again. Any last parting words? Oh gosh, we are all recalculating. Yes. Even if you're happy in your job, even if you're not sure, the new normal is that we've got to be looking and pivoting all the time. And I know that sounds really daunting and like a lot of work, but I think it's actually really exciting and empowering that you're never stuck. There are always opportunities. And I just deeply believe that things are gonna change and a lot of opportunities and options are gonna open up that haven't been there before and just keep your eyes open for all the different paths that are gonna open up because of this very strange and, and sad year that we've been through. But Orlando, you're, you're such a friend. I love all the comments um, and all the questions. I love your engaged audience and it's just been such an honor. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And folks, please, if you have any questions after, the, if you didn't catch the live and you're catching a recorded uh, piece, please ask me questions, tag Lindsay. She'll be, I'm sure she'll be happy to answer them and look forward to seeing you guys again next week. God bless. Music.